This is Harriet Wheelock, Keeper of Collections in the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Ida Milne, European History Lecturer in Carlow College and author of Stacking the Coffins, Influenza War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918-19. Ida, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you give us just a quick overview of the 1918-19 flu pandemic in Ireland and the key points you found from your research? It killed about 23,000 people, including about 3,000 excess pneumonia deaths. Officially, the death toll given by the Registrar General, Sir William Thompson, is 20,057 influenza deaths. They are right across the island, but the, 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 there were three waves of it in Ireland. It, it first of all, affected uh, the northeast down as far as Dublin, the quadrant from Antrim down to Dublin, uh, but uh, also affecting over as far as Donegal. And then in the second, that's quite a mild wave in um, May, June, July uh, 1918. Uh, the uh, second wave, uh, again, um, the northeast is affected, but this time it comes right down along the east coast. Leinster is really badly affected at that stage. The second wave is in October through December. Uh, 1918 in, in most parts of Ireland. And then in the third wave, it affects the, really the rest of the country. Uh, it moves westwards and, and inland. Mayo is particularly badly affected. Uh, there's a few interesting things about it in an Irish context. One, I suppose, um, is the big thing it wonder is why as an island we were never uh, quarantined. You would have thought that it would have been quite easy to quarantine us. And the conclusion I've come to about this, uh, and it was quite a long time coming to it, is that um, we were so important. Our strategic location in terms of the war was really important at the time because Russia had uh, gone into revolution. Germany uh, was able to f concentrate its power on the Western Front. When America entered the war in 1917, uh, it's established some both naval and air bases in Ireland. And they were very important to the war because they uh, provided convoy protection. So I suspect, and I've never been able to find anything to corroborate this, that quarantine may have been considered, but that we were too strategically important to, 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 to quarantine us completely. Another unique feature uh, is that Donegal has, is really badly affected in all three waves. And again, um, there are two reasons given for this. One Patricia Marsh has given is that um, it was affected by seasonal labour and that people were coming and going from that. But also um, that uh, Donegal had a strong population over in Scotland. So if, say, somebody died in, from Scotland uh, from the flu, they would come back in a boat with all the family on board and then have the traditional uh, wake, which are very, are very strong in, in Donegal. I was contacted by this lady, Kathleen McMenamin, who was about 15 when the flu happened. And she was still alive then. She was 107. And uh, she told me that the reason she thought it happened was because the Navy was using Loxville as both a safe haven from the U-boats and um, as a base. And that the uh, troops, uh, soldiers and the Navy came off the ships and into the community and she said they were spreading the flu and her mother had actually been nursing uh, at the time in in the locality so she was very familiar with it and she thought that was a really good reason the other um feature i suppose is there's lots of outbreaks around port towns yeah. and also around um barrack towns so places where there's activity Again, uh, different to um, COVID-19, um, the young people were particularly badly hit, young previously strong uh, adults 
are quite uh, a common um you'll see them being mentioned in the newspapers all the time sports people of all kinds being mentioned um so they the, the highest um, peak both globally and in Ireland would have been in the 25 to 35 sector and then the other sector that was really badly hit was the under fives but they were badly hit in Ireland affected by by many of the infectious diseases that were going around the place and I suppose that that one of the saddest statistics I've come across in all my research is that uh, typically in the 1910s there would be about 70,000 deaths on this island uh, in the whole island a little bit over it most years um but that one-fifth of those deaths were children under the age of five almost unimaginable yeah. to our modern lens what was the response of the medical profession to the the pandemic did they n- know how to treat it or were they very much kind of groping in the dark as things were changing well, at the time, um, death rate from infectious disease was falling. Uh, the medical profession had a really strong confidence in bacteriology as having given them the weapons they never had before uh, to combat um, death from, from infection. Their confidence became quite punctured uh, in, by this disease, and they had to try harder. It's a very familiar p- picture to what we're seeing now you know that they, they really were working out of their skins to try and come up with new solutions and some of them would say i wonder is this a virus and not a bacterium they thought it was caused by a, a bacterium and probably fifers bacillus which they understood to be responsible for the 90 uh, for the uh, 1890s or russian pandemic at the time they hadn't the, the microscopes that were capable of seeing a virus and it wasn't until the 1930s that it flu was really understood to be a virus. What they did was, was really interesting. They're constantly probing, asking questions, a lot like what we're seeing now. It's so mirrored with it. On the 15th of November, uh, 1918, the Royal Academy of Medicine held a special meeting where doctors got together and really pooled all the different treatments that, that they were trying. And there are lots of cartoons for the time showing that doctors are giving lots of conflicting advice and, and trying to um, use different treatments. You know, that the, 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 there was no one treatment. And of course, it's also a long time before uh, antibiotics. Uh, okay. So a lot of... Uh, the death at the time was understood to come from secondary uh, infections like pneumonias or meningitis or whatever. So the doctors got together, uh, shared um, their ideas. So they generally came to the conclusion that you needed uh, something to cure headache, which for which they suggested aspirin. For fever, they suggested quinine. Again, this is very interesting because, of course, we have anti-malarials have been considered for the current uh, pandemic as they also suggested uh, something for sleeplessness, which they said something like trienol or some preparation of op- opium. Um, they were absolutely obsessed with keeping people's bowels open. Uh, so they all recommended calomel. And I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. And I hope somebody will enlighten me about it. But calomel is mercurous chloride. And my reckoning is that um, you had a very sick patient who doesn't want to move. And suddenly they have to get out of bed and, and go to the the pole <laughs> that maybe the doctors is kind of a confidence thing that they, they seem to be doing something, something yeah uh, they recommended alcohol alcohol was much more commonly used in hospitals uh then than now and was always part of the requisition in hospitals and in workhouses and uh, dw mcnamara who gave one of the few uh written accounts and a marvelous account 
um, uh, was a junior hospital doctor, the matter at the time, and he said that the older doctors um, gave um, whiskey and brandy in what he called heroic quantities. And he said at least they went on a merry dance to thereafter. <laughs> There's lots of talk of patients banging their heads off walls. Uh, because the pain was so severe. Another side effect that people have told me about is hair fell out. And you see lots of advertisements in the front of newspapers for a thing called pilocarpine, uh, which was uh, supposed to promote hair growth after influenza. Okay. So that was a feature of it, apparently. Yeah. yeah. The other um, medicament that we would find quite unusual uh, was strychnine. And that was particularly given in the poor law unions in, in the north, in Ulster, uh, where uh, the local boards of guardians wouldn't approve of alcohol. And the doctors felt obliged to give some form of stimulant, so they gave strychnine as a stimulant. Okay. You've mentioned a couple of times either things that are similar with the current COVID pandemic or things that are different. Do you think there are lessons that we can learn either as a society or as a, a I guess, as the medical profession from the flu pandemic? Well, as I suppose as a society, um, what's going on in the background um, with medicine at the time is that hospitals were very underfunded, like the way that they are uh, today. And they were really struggling because the war, wartime inflation had really put a, a big strain on the resources. I suppose one thing we should learn is never to pair our services back to the limit, that we should always have some slack in the system uh, for that. Um, but I suppose the other thing that I think I've learned really from all the interviews I've done is that this isn't just an immediate crisis. This is going to be with us for the next hundred years. Um, I've seen hospital doctors talking about their own children, their toddlers, trying to come to understand with the pressures that their family are under. You know, the parents come through the door and have to have a shower straight away before they can hug them and those kind of things. Those children are going to remember that. And um, that's one of the things why I think it's particularly important uh, to collect memory. Uh, because for me, and I suppose for the 1918 flu is such a puzzle because, um, well, for a start, obviously, we, we didn't have oral recordings at the time. Yeah. Uh, society was very disrupted between the war, the revolutionary position here in Ireland um, and the flu itself. And, you know, family illness, you know, if the whole family was ill, you were trying to um, struggle to, to stay alive rather than to um, record or to document what was happening. And a few people did understand that importance, yeah. uh, like McNamara. Um, but one of the things that happens when we see a disruption in society like this is that records break down and that record keeping breaks down. You're struggling to do other things like people keep, keeping people alive. Even the registrar gen or the local government board for Ireland said that the doctors were not documenting all the people who died. They were not certifying them all because they were too busy keeping the, the, the ill and alive rather than doing the paperwork for the dead. Yeah. So, you know, that's something I think we all have to remember. And it's something that I'm uh, been really pleased to see that you and other archivists are very conscious of in 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 the current um situation yeah. um you know that the archivists of all kinds of librarians have really uh, come up and understood the importance of what's what's going on but yeah. memory um, memory is so important at so many levels yeah. it's really uh, it interesting because you're saying both that it's that there's very long-lasting impacts from the flu pandemic oh. and from COVID, but at the same time that the flu pandemic has been largely sort of written out of history and i was just wondering why you think 
or or is it a combination of reasons that it's been, I guess, left out of Irish history books? The memory thing is, is really, to me, fascinating because um, you, uh, flu escaped, uh, it wasn't really dealt with by historians. Um, really, Aunt Alfred Crosby wrote his marvellous account of flu in America and also in the, in the Paris Peace Conference. I think it was the 1970s. I think the reasons why it was forgotten are complex and really interesting, are not really uh, uh, forgotten by historians, I suppose, more than society as a general. Um, When I started interviewing in 2006, I realized it really was still there in the memory. Mm -hmm. So it's there in individual family memory where people were affected. when you look at that background of disease uh, that so many people were dying from infectious diseases at the time, I think that's another reason why it's it seems more significant maybe to us with a hindsight lens yeah. uh, than it was in society at the time. And that's not to say it's unimportant, but it's just they were coping with uh, death from infectious disease and, and other causes day in, day out, with death from you know diseases of poverty as well as infection. They were coping with things like housing crises and, and other issues. It, most families would have experienced some kind of death from infectious disease. You know, it, uh, The other reason I think it wasn't so much noticed is because history from below wasn't all that popular mm. for a long time. And it only becomes more popular really in the post-Second World War period, where you see really an explosion in um, history of the working class, uh, history of black America, for example, too, and in the growth of oral history as well. And all these things helped us to open historians' eyes to see what was right underneath our noses, you know, and had been happening all along. You've talked a bit about the importance of the oral history that you've collected as part of your project. And I guess one of the things that... Um, as you mentioned, that we've been doing is we're encouraging um, those working in healthcare to submit accounts of the current COVID um, pandemic to an archive in in the college. And I was just wondering if um, you perhaps would give your view on why it's so important for us to capture this kind of first-hand account now. One of the reasons I thought it was really important to do this straight away is because um, it really occurred to me, having studied something that happened 100 years ago, is that as it passes through, our emotions are changing constantly you know we feel very differently about it uh to the way we felt two months or three months ago each week seems to bring a new emotion or a change in an emotion or even now a kind of resolution you know i now have have a pattern where i know when i get into my car i put on my face mask and i have my sanitizer with me these little patterns that we developed we also have an emotional reaction to it uh, uh, particularly if i think if you're in the medical profession because you're up so close and personal to it uh, you're dealing with uh, looking at patients and wondering uh, whether what you're doing is going to work because this is something you've never encountered before yeah. and gradually now you can see that uh, medicine sees patterns um, more and more like you know each week um, brings a new uh, awareness everything is is changing as it goes on as, as they begin to understand this isn't just a disease of a fortnight it's a disease now some people are suffering serious effects for, from 70 80 days yeah uh, and will go onwards because we don't know what full pattern this has yet yeah. so i think we need one thing is to inform medicine because it's really important uh, another thing is you know medical workers are severely stressed and if they have even a way of talking about it particularly if it's somewhere secure if they don't want to open it up for the moment they can put it away for a while 
other issues is how they dealt with it in their private lives you know whether they had to send the children away somewhere else or you know normally that their grandparents their parents might be carers for their children and now they can't be all these issues you know and children asking questions at home all these things are important to document for the future you mentioned um, earlier a, a, a dr mcnamara who produced an account of the 1918 flu is is it quite unusual to have a first-hand accounts written by medics of what was happening there. Very, very unusual. Maris is the only one I have in an Irish context. Okay. Uh, we have the immediate reports from, um, you know, the, 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 the Royal Academy of Medicine meeting, um, mm. but we have very little otherwise from mm. it. Um, an odd letter or two from doctors to the poor union or to the local uh, to their uh, employers talking about the, the struggles yeah. that they're under uh, but nothing really no really brilliant overview like mcnamara and yeah. mcnamara also reflects on things like you know the issue of the matter the one phrase that um i really struck me with how heartfelt it was even though he was writing in the 1950s so many years later yeah. uh, was that he said the one consolation they had in the matter was the the constant plod of the uh, horses drawing the carriages the hearses uh, mm-hmm. to Glasnevin cemetery because he said that at least that meant other hospitals weren't doing any better than the matter was yeah you know so that they weren't doing anything that was all that wrong well, at the time yeah I suppose the other thing is is that the the, the the report of the Irish um, Public Health Council that comes out immediately after it. Well, it, it doesn't immediately, uh, it doesn't directly mention the or reference the flu. It's quite obvious uh, that there are things the crises has shown to them that it's cast a light on issues, and they talk about things like communication. Yeah. and the importance of their communication and of connectivity between the different services. And I think, again, that's something we're seeing now. Yeah, lots you know, of that lessons, that this, uh, things that are the same as they were perhaps 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like medicine has obviously got an awful lot more sophisticated, but um, the overall management of medicine, is it all that much different? Yeah. The, you know, you saying earlier about the funding as well being an issue in the hospitals. And, and that... that somehow we have to stop uh, to understand that as a people uh, we need to pay more in tax uh, to have a better medical service but also that that medical service has to um i suppose be examined more thoroughly yeah uh, like they tried to do in 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 1920 in ireland but then ultimately that plan was shelved because of of uh, the revolution and the the new regime 